A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 142 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, 2nd Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as at Stitcher. They're also right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWB on Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like a clone with convictions, the EU guru himself, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. We're back. Finally ending that Darth Vader series this time around. Yeah, we finally got there. Another notch on our uh, belt of series we've tackled. Uh, you know, it's been kind of a, a weird ride. I'm looking forward to getting this one past us and moving on to some other things, maybe some new Jedi Order down the road. Uh, before we get into that, uh, we got some uh, announcements about our contest. That's right, folks. Remember, we are giving away three different copies, one of which was used to actually work on the Star Wars Timeline Gold this year, of the Star Wars A New Dawn exclusive advanced reader edition. That is the paperback version of A New Dawn with that uh, unusual cover relative to what it'll eventually have when it's in paperback that was given away exclusively at San Diego Comic Con this year. We have three copies of those. We're giving them away all the same way. What you do to enter is email us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Put A New Dawn in the subject line. And in the body of the email, give us your mailing address in case you do win. Yes, you have to have the mailing address in the body. Otherwise, the entry doesn't count. We have to know where to send it. Can't tell you how many times folks have not followed that instruction. Um, so if you want to get those entries in, make sure you get them in soon. We figure we want an end time for this contest that is easy to remember. So we're just going to say that the end point of this contest is 10-10. Right, October 10th, which in the U.S., because I'm sure we have international listeners who have, you know, different uh, uh, date, line, time zone things going on, uh, means that we will be ending uh, at midnight Eastern time on what is technically the 11th. Because we want to go all the way up through the 10th, which is a Friday, and then as soon as that switches over in the Eastern Time Zone from Friday into Saturday at midnight, that's it. And we will just be drawing three separate winners from that same pool of entries. So you only have to enter once to be eligible to possibly win any of these three. And I will say this so far has been our biggest contest in terms of the number of entries received. So good luck to everyone. Get those entries in by then. And fairly soon after that, we will announce who actually won the copies, though whether that'll be in a data burst episode or in an episode recorded around that same time kind of just depends because that's a day that an episode would come out, but we wouldn't necessarily know who won until drawing the entries the next day on that Saturday. So there'll either be about a week delay in finding out who won, or we'll just 
plop out a data burst there for you so that you can find out uh, well in advance. But of course, if you win, you'll get an email from us letting you know before the items are actually shipped out. Good luck. And may the force be with you. Here at Stars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. Now this episode, we're going to look at Dark Horse Comics' Darth Vader and the Cry of Shadows. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. I guess the first spoiler-free thing to say is that uh, this series is not as bad as Tim Seidel's first Darth Vader outing, his first comic outing ever, as I recall, which was Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin, which we refer to often as Darth Vader and the lack of plot. Um, but saying that it's better than Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin is kind of like saying, okay, see, I don't like sweet potatoes. Never have liked sweet potatoes. Doesn't matter what kind it is, Never like sweet potatoes, especially that mushy kind of kind that you can get around, you know, Thanksgiving time that people usually have. Not a fan of sweet potatoes, but they're orange. Well, I have a tabby, uh, a an orangish cat, and from time to time she leaves me little <laughs> presents laying around in the form of bright orange hairballs. Um, in making the comparison of things that are orange, I could very easily say, hey. I like munching on, you know, people are now losing their lunch, um, on sweet potatoes, certainly more than that other orange thing, the hairball. Doesn't make the sweet potatoes good, just means that it's better than basically eating cat vomit. In this case, this is another of these stories that is better than Ninth Assassin, but that doesn't make it a good tale by any means. Uh, when reading the issues individually, it can be particularly confusing. Um, it is another one that has an instance with the opening page and the date given for the story that shows that the people actually putting together the cover pages of these stories aren't bothering to actually read what they're summarizing or read what they're giving a date to. It's got art that is sometimes good, sometimes meh, by Gabriel Guzman, and it's just a story that has, it's got some good moments, and I think the idea is it's supposed to show why it is that some people would willingly follow the Emperor and Vader. Why Vader doing what he's doing, especially going after the Jedi and being somewhat unstoppable, could be seen as sort of a heroic thing. Something people could aspire to and look up to and want to be part of in terms of being part of his army. Uh, and how disillusionment comes when seeing the truth behind the mask, so to speak, seeing the violence that has made him so well-respected or so feared throughout the galaxy. Um, but it does so using a character, a clone, who has been left behind on the battlefield and sort of comes back and winds up serving Vader and, and earning Vader's trust and so forth, that really, for all their efforts to make him a deep character, to give this character some measure of, of a new dimension, to his characterization, to me, it really falls flat. He always feels like a very flat, very uncomplicated character throughout the story. 
and they you get to the final issue expecting some big crazy revelation or something and yes his character arc ends with some change as a character arc is meant to but it kind of feels like it's out of nowhere and we get some final scenes in what's supposed to be the climax here that leave you going what just happened where the detail is simply not present something that might have made sense as we'll get to when we get to the final issue that might have made sense if this were a film and you had the ability to jump camera angles and such and hear the silence in the room and see the reaction of people to something that's being said that the audience can't hear and so forth but in this form just kind of leaves you shaking your head um, there's a lot of those types of moments in this story uh, this is not one that I would recommend it's one I wouldn't necessarily say to avoid it's not terrible it's not really bad it's just not good um, so given the choice again if you're looking at the Darth Vader comic series out there check out either of the ones by Hayden Blackman uh, Darth Vader and the Lost Command or Darth Vader in the Ghost Prison those you'll enjoy particularly Ghost Prison uh, the two by Seidel so far have been hairballs to me yeah this one had potential i i felt like it was fragmented when i was reading it single issues i didn't know what was going on when i was going back through it i still felt it was fragmented it it felt like there was multiple stories being told but it was all the same plot and we were just getting different versions of how to tell it it was like sometimes you felt like it was you know taken from the past and you were set in the past, and there were other times you were looking back on it, and then there are other moments where you're like, okay, this is happening in the present, but the way it was all mixed together, I mean, you got the idea that, okay, yeah, they're trying to show you Vader through the eyes of someone who looks up to him through shared hatred of the Jedi. I got that. Um, and then the, the clone wanted to document everything because the Empire removed all that stuff. I was getting that as well, but when it got to the end, and then everything kind of gets shoved off to the side, the point... The moral of this story was lost on me at that point. I mean, beyond the, the fact that the person that was looking at Vader through awe in the end woke up to the reality of what was going on. I mean, beyond that, I don't know if there was anything more to this story that was to be told. It felt a lot like Traitor, where every time I read it, I was picking up something new. Except for unlike Traitor, there was no depth to this. I, you know, it was... Five issues that happen so quick and fast that when you're going back over it, you're like, wait, what's going on? And and the pacing of it is not necessarily bad, but with the way it's fragmented, it leaves you constantly getting lost and that messes up your pacing. You know, you could probably have real good pacing if you weren't losing the reader so often. Uh, there were some really cool moments where you had clone-on-clone clone fights and stuff like that. And it was interesting to see perceptions change through the comic. But as that happened, it took me a second to realize what was going on. And that could have been a failure on the narrative. I'm not exactly sure. But I, I too, I'm with you. I, I like this a heck of a lot more than, than uh, The Ninth Assassin. But I, I was hoping that you would really enjoy this because I was thinking that there was something to this that I just wasn't getting. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I was hesitant to say that it sucked because I felt like I missed something. Like there was, you know, I, I felt like I was the one that failed. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, maybe as we progress, maybe we'll figure out something else about this that I can lock my finger on. But fragmented is definitely what I would use to describe it. It, it would be one that I would reluctantly tell people about. Uh, it's interesting to see a point of view of Vader from that time frame, 
but I don't think it was delivered very well. Sadly, you said that uh, about the failing, and in my head, I'm hearing a parody of Metallica, right? Follow the plot that failed! <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely not... Uh, I got a feeling that those who really are into clones and would go for a clone story, no matter what it is, um, probably are going to disagree with us on this one because it is so clone focused. Um, It just, it it didn't work. I think fragmented is a perfect way to describe it. It is fragmented throughout to the point where as individual issues, they were difficult to follow. Uh, When it's all put together, I didn't necessarily have trouble following any of it it just felt like it was a clunky way to tell the story um i mean there's all kinds of ways to jump around when telling a story heck one of my favorite movies is fight club and you're all over the place in that yeah. but it has kind of that through line that makes you able to necessarily follow it this one i wonder if it's not so much that the fragmentation throws off the ability to to, to take in the plot so much as the fragmentation helps to highlight the fact that it just kind of feels like this character is flat. You know, we should be able to get a real sense of how different he is in the different times to really feel his changes. And we don't. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that is because of the fact that you have this overarching narration where he's narrating it all looking back from a point after all these events. So the him that is telling us about them is the same each time. So no matter what's different for him in the past in these flashbacks, it feels the same because of the point of where the narration's coming from. But it just it doesn't manage to do what I think he was setting out to do when it comes to giving us this character's arc. And uh, it reminds me, I've never entirely been on board with the whole Troy Denning not being a good closer thing. I think Troy Denning has an unusual way of closing stories. You expect a closing act to be epic. And he tends to zoom in more on specific individuals. Like, uh, I liked Invincible as an end of Legacy of the Force, but it left a lot of threads hanging because he zoomed in on some specific situations and it didn't feel like he wrapped everything up. Uh, Crucible, you expected something different for it to be the end of those big adventures of the big three within mm-hmm. the Legends continuity. Um, in a sense, it seems as though Seidel's issue is closing as well. Um, in that you get a closure that feels like the story has ended, but it's a weak close. It, it doesn't manage to hit all the notes that it seems like it needs to. Um, this is a story that I could have bought into had it not been for the abruptness and weakness of, say, the last issue and a half, which is where that character's development and changes really should have kicked into high gear, and in a sense did but felt like it was completely disconnected to everything else that came before and lacking in detail. So, yeah, again, not one I would recommend, not one I'd say completely stay away from. Uh, maybe your tastes are very different than ours, but for mm. us, yeah. Well, I think you definitely nailed something there when, when you mentioned those that like clones are going to get it. Because I, I think that's about the aspect of the story that I really enjoyed. I did like the main character. I liked seeing his journey where he was going, but tracking how he progressed was very hard. I think that's where, for me, the failing fell apart because I, I really liked where he ended. 
I just wasn't exactly sure what made him come up to those last decisions. I mean, I kind of got the impression that he decided he was going to give it all up for love after everything he'd seen. Because there was a lot of emphasis on the fact that he was born and bred to fight. You know, he was born and bred to be this machine and, and all this stuff. And and then there was a moment where he's, you know, lost his will to fight. And he has to have it, you know, brought back. I, it was just so many. The journey for him was probably the only thing about it that was fun. But again, it didn't have that, like you said, the through line that really tied it all together. That that mi being missing definitely was felt. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate in our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warnings beyonders and sentience of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, so let's dive into this thing here. We're going to do our whole issue at a time type summaries uh, before we comment on each one, very much like we did with Darth Vader and the Ghost Prison, though hopefully the comparisons stop there. Um, chronologically, by the way, there's... Again, this is where it shows that they just don't bother reading the stories when they're putting in the date information. If you look on the inside cover of each issue, it says the events in this story take place several months before and a few months after the events in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. However, repeatedly in the story, he talks about how uh, before he goes to rejoin Vader and everything, um, he has not held a blaster or fired a blaster in two years. And they talk about it being two years since he wound up finding himself left behind on this planet where the story essentially begins. Um, even taking liberties with what could be meant by several months or a few months, I don't see several months or a few months meaning a year or more. At best, maybe a teeny bit less than a year, though even that is stretching it quite a bit. So their own little opening comment about when this takes place doesn't make logical sense with the story they're trying to tell. This story has to either start quite a bit earlier in the Clone Wars than just several months before Revenge of the Sith, or must have an end point, the, the present day, happening more than just a few months after the events of Revenge of the Sith, or both. But logically, the dates they're giving us on the, uh, the the title page, the credits page, that supposedly tell us when this story takes place, doesn't make logical sense with what we're getting in the issue itself. This is another one of these that I emailed Leland Chi about at the time. But unlike uh, Dawn of the Jedi Force War, which is coming out around the same time, this one never got that fix put into the actual published version. Instead, uh, we're left with this confusing set of dates, because if you open up the last issue, same thing, um, at least when referring to the events in that issue. It's funny, because they change the opening little uh, time stamp, so to speak, for each issue, depending on whether it's got those flashbacks in it, and yet they never bother to actually tweak it to be entirely accurate, so whatever, just read your freaking stories before you put the dates in them. Alright, so story-wise, we start on a battlefield uh, where we hear the narration of this clone we're going to know as Hawk Malsum. You know, I fought alongside Jedi in many campaigns, fearless warriors, yes, but their ancient magic held no sway over me, etc., etc. Um, he's fighting with a group of clone troopers in the early armor alongside a blue Twi'lek female Jedi. But no, 
We know it's not Ayla Secure because A, she dies on the battlefield there, and B, she's wearing actual regular Jedi clothes instead of running around um, in the Republic-esque outfit that Ayla Secure gets to wear because, hey, if you're a Twi'lek and you're a Jedi, or a woman and a Jedi, apparently, if you're marginally hot, you are allowed to wear whatever the hell you want um, because, hey, attachment is forbidden, but lust and rrr at other Jedi apparently is okay. Um, in this battle... Uh, she is shot and killed, and Hawk is the one carrying her body, out of loyalty to his commanders, uh, back to their ship uh, with his helmet off for some reason. As he's talking about the death of the Jedi, we start getting these... I guess they're sort of like the embodiment of rumor. They're like mental images of what he thinks about it's these panels that are done with jagged black lines around it. And in this case, he's talking about a warrior unlike any in the galaxy he heard of later, surely unlike any that he had fought alongside. Uh, talking about Vader after the events of Revenge of the Sith. So we've got the past, we've got the vision, and then we've got what is sort of the present, where he is in a bar where he's hearing all these tales about Vader that are fueling his imagination. And we've got some really cool artwork as it goes along. Uh, we find that he is apparently uh, no longer in the war because he's working uh, on a particular planet. Again, more and more and more of these images of Vader, what he's hearing about Vader, Vader using the Force to crash two ships together and whatnot, uh, Vader on the battlefield, uh, wiping away the enemy and so forth. And he talks about how loyalty is a choice. And we see the moment at which he's been working on this farm that took him in uh, after he was left behind by the Jedi, we will find. And he basically goes through, he cuts his hair, gets down into sort of more fighting shape and heads out to eventually go actually try to find Vader. Uh, going through the wasteland, heading off alone to try to find Vader, the man who he thinks he could have real loyalty to because he admires the stories about him. We jump back in flashback to something we don't really have an explanation to yet, which is him lying on the ground in his clone trooper armor, no helmet on, because um, apparently he's just taken that Jedi back to the ship and everything, and there's a blaster wound cut type thing going across his face um, that only barely misses taking out his eye. Apparently his eye was closed at the time, so it just hit the eyelid itself. Flashbacks occur that give us a little bit more about how he was created, not bred, and so forth. Uh, looking back at Camino and the training, and they have some good moments of, of course, um, the Daniel Logan-looking younger clones, uh, the clones doing martial arts training, the clones in training gear that looks very much uh, like an adaptation of the training gear we saw back in Clone Cadets in the Clone Wars, talking about how, uh, in, as part of this military, he's part of a machine. A machine with an unlimited number of replacement parts, each part equally important, meaning not important at all, which is an interesting point. We find that there's an explosion up ahead, or uh, up above, while he is on the ground in his clone armor, having been left behind, which we'll find out more about in one of the subsequent uh, panels here. And we see that he apparently crawls to safety in, like, a ledge uh, to, to keep himself out of the harsh elements of that planet. And amid that flashback, we get the flashback to... A flashback, maybe? To what exactly happened to him. He had apparently gotten that Jedi back to the ship. He put his helmet back on and was manning a minigun in the doorway of a Republic gunship. And a blast from below struck and shattered his helmet 
completely off of his face, leaving that slash burn type thing across his eye, or his eyelid, I guess. And as he is recoiling from that and the ship is taking evasive action, he's falling backward out of the ship and sees the Jedi, the, this uh, uh, Zabrak Jedi, start to move. And apparently it seems like he's thinking that the Jedi is going to move to grab him to keep him from falling. And instead the Jedi is, is moving to point in the opposite direction. So he just falls on out of the gunship. And that apparently is what's fueling his hatred of the Jedi. The Jedi chose not to save him or to ignore him, and he fell to what could have been his death. Well, uh, what's great about that scene, though, is that the Jedi had his lightsaber ignited, and you watch him disengage the lightsaber, attach it to his belt, and then take the hand that had the lightsaber in point. We're moving forward. So I did think that was kind of slick. But in any event, the last couple pages, I mean, there's not really a whole lot to it. We see him you know, in the little little crevice that he managed to get himself into. Uh, drinking water from the rain, see he's roughing it, he's trying to survive, and we see him eventually making his way across the desert, uh, as we saw back at the beginning where he decided he was going to leave to go find Vader, as he makes his way to a city. Uh, it is a city that will wind up being where he can hook up, essentially, with the Empire. But he says, uh, as it is, that he is a, the clone formerly known as CT-5539, the events in this story are true. The individuals I describe here lived and fought and died. I know I was there, even if the Empire wiped it off from the historical record. So we're supposed to get the sense that, ooh, this is going to be some kind of secret mission type thing. Something where, you know, the Empire wanted it kept. Hush, hush. They even eventually call it the Shrouded Campaign. Ooh. But it never really gets to a point that feels like it's all that impressive. Um, but that first issue, it is a huge mixture of overarching narration, the present, which will very quickly zip on towards the future, and a lot of different disjointed flashbacks to the past that give you a sense of the battle in which he was left behind, but really feel disjointed very much like those, you know, like the type of thing you would get with, say, a, a fight club or something, where it seems like it's much more about when he's thinking about the past and how he thinks about the past, maybe in fits and starts, not in terms of one a continuous memory of that whole sequence. Put it this way, his imaginations of Vader with the jagged black lines around them are easier to follow than the flashbacks are. But yeah. they do make a sort of sense in the broad scheme of things. And I think that's where my fragment issue comes into, because there's a story here that I wanted to enjoy. I, I think if they just started with Camino. And started with the clone's life beginning there and moving forward and, and kind of kept things linear and, and in a chronological fashion. Maybe I'd have been able to track it along. I mean, let, let's take this issue, for example. You know, the first opening page, love the picture of the saber. But even that is a flash forward because that scene, you turn the page, that scene hasn't happened yet. She still has the lightsaber in her hand. Then three panels later, boom, now you see it there. Now we're caught up to where the first panel is. So you've already jumped forward and backward in time, you know, and, and, and then you, like you said, after that, she, he picks her up and then all of a sudden now you've jumped basically where this story is that you've jumped two time frames, but you don't know it yet because you haven't got to the next issue because he's already fallen out and survived and made it to the farm and has the living. And so, I mean, there's nothing to tell you that's happened yet. I mean, and then, you know, as you're going, I, I did like the fact, though, when he was talking about, you know, uh, truth and how it's the first casualty on that, on any battlefield. He goes, I know this myself. 
but it's also where legends are born. And a legend can conquer entire galaxies and live on forever and ever. And I, I don't know. I mean, now that we've got this whole legends divide, every time I see legends show up at all, I'm like, oh, that's kind of that's kind of poetic. <laughs> so, but yeah, then it gets it's back to you know you're still there with him with the scar on his face. He's talking about loyalty. He's wearing you know farmer clothes, and you really don't know what's going on again. You know, and then boom, again we jump back to now. Like you said, he's got the slash on his face. You don't know where it went. So. I just keep thinking, you know, if they'd have put this in a, a linear fashion, maybe it would have told a story in a sense that I could track. But again, maybe this is just is just something that it, it didn't appeal to the way my brain thinks. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're someone out there that really, really enjoyed this, you really dug it and you, you know, you were seeing something that I didn't see. Please, on the comment section, you know, let us know what it was about this that you particularly enjoyed or, or that we missed. I mean, because I, I recognize that there's something about the way this is presented that didn't click for me. I mean, I see really cool aspects of the story, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, this is the character I want to know. But by the time I got to the end of it, it just it didn't line up. It was like I was missing parts of the puzzle, and I couldn't quite tell what the picture was. And this is also the issue where you start to – I mean, it, it's clear right from the outset that the chronological thing's screwy because he says, my debt to the farmer, no doubt, repaid with interest many months before. So it's been many months at least since he – fell out of the gunship and worked his way back to society, okay, that doesn't necessarily cause much of an issue by itself, but then here, by the time I walked off that farm, I hadn't fired a blaster in more than two years. What? Didn't it just say a several months, a few, oh, screw it. You know, you, you finally have to just say, I'm going to go with what the story is saying, not with what the title page is saying. Because as we saw with Dawn of the Jedi, that doesn't necessarily mean much of anything, the errors tend to persist. They did that actually a long time ago with Tales of the Jedi, too, way back in the day when they used to have the timeline uh, in the front of each issue. I don't know. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at, it's weird because I tend to like stories that weave in flashbacks or flash forwards with the rest. I mean, heck, that's what my mm -hmm. book, Greater Good, does. The way that we learn about the future and the background of the two main character, the antagonist and protagonist in that story, is through flashbacks within their lives, which are actually flash-forwards to us uh, because it's all happening in the future, because it's a time travel story. I like that type of storytelling. It's the type of storytelling you get, say, with Lost, or you get with Arrow, where they're telling simultaneous tales in different times, but what you get in one impacts your understanding of the other, hence telling them at the same time, especially in the case of something like Lost. And I don't know if what we surely have gotten here is maybe something where the flashbacks had a time notation on it, but they don't, because in this case, all of the narration, all the narrative boxes are from him speaking. Um, I don't know if they maybe should have taken the actual panels and changed their borders a little bit to look a little bit differently, like they do with when he's basically imagining things, or what. Uh, and him imagining, I gotta say, those jagged black lines, it seemed as though this was I don't know. It, it, it's something that by the time you're done, the only way to make sense of something from issue, I believe it's number four, going into five, is to recognize that those jagged edges are his mental images that aren't necessarily accurate. Because I was thinking those jagged edges are another way of showing us yet another time frame of things that he's hearing about, but that are meant to actually be taken literally that this is what was happening. But that is impossible based on what we get in what I believe is the second issue relative to the fourth and fifth. 
um, that there could have been something different with the way that things were drawn. So that if the narrative wasn't going to give us a sense of what fits where, maybe, just maybe we could have gotten that with the way the art was set up. Again, it's not that it's impossible to follow. Yeah. But it bounces around a lot, feels disjointed, and kind of leaves you sort of scratching your head. Though I will say that having done that, one positive that comes out of it is you're able to get such quick, brief snapshots of different moments in time that that first issue is able to cover a lot of ground. Yeah. That if it was told in a linear fashion, might have taken a couple of issues. So in that sense, there is some success to be had in that first issue. It's just not... I don't think that when you're doing a story that's individual issues released a month apart, that that's necessarily going to be the easiest thing to follow or to remember for a lot of readers. Yeah, that is going to be a hard one, especially any comic you read. Anytime there's a month or more between issues, you're going to probably get lost. One thing I will say, though, that I really enjoyed about issue one was the art. Uh, when they had those flashback scenes and stuff with Vader, there was some really cool single panels and stuff with him standing up above like a rock with bodies down below, things like that. I like the color choices and things in that nature. I like the way that the clones are drawn. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely a high plus on the art side for me. I'm enjoying what we're seeing so far. That brings us to issue number two, uh, the first page of which uh, can't help to me uh, but bring out that song that I know best, I guess, from uh, uh, the Weird Al parody, Tacky, or from the end of uh, Despicable Me, I think it was, uh, because he's talking about how everybody's happy and everything on this planet. He's made his way, it would appear, from where we saw him in the last issue, overlooking the town, after he's been on the farm, he chooses to leave, He's going to seek Vader. He's walked his way to this city. Now we're at the city. And there's this big celebration going on with these big imperial banners because the Empire is recognizing the city for their heroics, presumably, as they're talking about a future without conflict or fear, where peace and security are offered to every citizen of the Empire, etc., etc., um, because they managed to capture a Jedi, a Jedi who is Serene. But it's not Kiati Mundi. It's kind of like it seems like he's trying to touch on these, well, we want to recognize this character as a Jedi, so let's just use species we know Jedi from. We've got a Zabrak, because we've got Agen Kolar and Eeth Komp. We've got a Blue Twi'lek, because we've got Ayla Secura. Now we've got a Serian, because everybody knows Kiati Mundi. But none of them are who they presumably would have been. Um, they're just, like, doppelgangers almost. Uh, very, very close in design, but not exactly the same character. Uh, <laughs> but again, he says, it's amazing how quickly things can change in two years. Uh, so again, the time reference there. Uh, well, and but, this is also where it's going to jump, because from this point, we go to flashback, and the next time you'll see him in this moment of presence, he's in armor already working for Vader, which took me a second. I was like, wait, what? Where did he? And I had to go back to this and figure, oh, that's just not explained. Okay. Yeah, it's another of the bouncing around kind of things here. So we go from him just finding the city, you know, and seeing them in the middle of celebration to a flashback to him back in the little crevice, how he fights to survive against these wild creatures that show up and apparently, for whatever reason, decides to give himself a name, which he scrawls on the wall of the little crevice that he's in, um, which apparently is Hawk. Now, what it is about his situation, and as him choose it, it says, I decided right then and there that it would be my name, Hawk, and that I was going to survive. Not sure where he gets the Hawk 
from, unless that's supposed to be maybe the name of the creatures or something that he was fighting. Um, I'm assuming that he he wasn't meaning to choose a name that refers to gathering up spit before you launch it, uh, or a name that refers to pawning something. But he chooses, apparently, while he's there, the name Hawk. We see him make his way to a cave, where he spends even more time patching himself up. And then we get what is sort of a... Again, it looks like it's a flashback within a flashback. He's telling a story, but it's got the black jagged edges. So presumably this is his imagining of the truth based on what he's heard, based on the rumors he's heard, just like with Vader back in the first issue. Talking about a Mandalorian, uh, well, a, a clone of a Mandalorian, of course, just like him from Kamino, known as the Mandalorian Anomaly. This is a clone that was trained for commando operations by a Mandalorian instructor who is not named. Could have been Django, could have been one of several others, because there were several um, that we got within uh, the Clone Wars continuity before the cartoon came around and made them just regular bounty hunters, not Mandalorians. Um, well, it wouldn't have been Django, because the rumor had it that the guy strangled his instructor with his bare hands. Right, right. So it's, so it's some, well, assuming that you know they were ever told the truth about what happened to Django Fett, though, true. Yeah, because Hawk, I mean, at this point, Hawk thinks that this guy's the only clone that ever named himself. So there's there's that moment in time to kind of lock into, too, that that was where he disappeared. He disappeared from the regiment before all the clones started getting names. Right. So he's this, supposedly a mutant, supposedly a mistake that the Kaminoans have done all kinds of, uh, uh, of different experiments on to see how the cloning could go horribly, horribly wrong, uh, presumably just based on the fact that he had different ideas than what the instructors expected of him. And apparently at one point, Hawk had taken dinner to this individual um, who, while in captivity, called him a slave. And he's got these images in his head, apparently, not flashback, but mental images. Otherwise, what we get in issues four and five don't make sense of him being this huge, uh, beefed up, almost Bane from Batman looking uh sort of mutated creature of a man who's got his name scrawled repeatedly across his back and whose face is all kind of slashed and gashed up. Like, he's a, he's mutated into this crazy freak who then disappears. Um, that some say he was terminated, some say that he managed to escape. Um, we see him then as he finally leaves the cave or the crevice. I mean, he left the crevice, gone to the cave. So he leaves the wilds once he's finally healed enough, makes his way to the farm that he was referring to working on and then leaving, where he's found by the farmer um, who finds him as he cr after he's crossed the Malsum Expanse, hence taking Malsum as his last name. And the moment we jump back to what is theoretically the present, as Mark noted, He's already back with the Empire. He's back with the Empire. He's wearing the new uh, Stormtrooper armor. He has basically marked his helmet with a red slash across the eye, very much like his own scar, although the other Stormtroopers at this point, which later he will note some are clones and some are recruits, um, are kind of like, what? About him wanting to mark his face to look different than any others. And we see him in a battle in which Darth Vader is participating, uh, being sort of a legend. He's never seen anything like it. Vader is more than a warrior. And we see them take out some Selkath until a ship bearing some other Selkath pirates launches from underwater and is trying to escape. And it's only Hawk who's able to use a grappling hook to get aboard and subdue 
those pirates. It's Selkath and then one uh, Nautilin that he manages to subdue. And this gives him a uh, some accolades, some new armor, the rank of commander. And he really wants Vader's trust at that point. It's a, a prize that he intends to win. And we end the issue as they're boarding a ship um, to go off on another mission where he says, you know, you sometimes find yourself in a place you never imagined going. Next, the Shrouded Offensive. Ooh. And <laughs> lots of bouncing around in time to cover a lot of ground. But I would say that, it, like Mark was saying, of all the different jumps in time, I think that this is the one that had me going, uh? it wasn't the jumps to the past. It was the jump from, hey, at the beginning of the issue, he just has made it to a city that happens to have Imperials in it, to poof! Now he's a stormtrooper already working with Vader's command. Yeah, that was a little hard to follow. You know, you got something again with when you mentioned the borders, because, you know, yeah, in issue one, when he was talking about the legends of Vader and stuff like that, anytime he was getting information secondhand, it had those jagged lines. And I like the way that that plays out with Caddick. Uh, when you get to the part where, you know, it talks about him saying, uh, they said he didn't even like sharing a face with the rest of us. So he took matters into his own hands. And you see that panel and he's turned and he's got the big old scars in his face. Then the next panel, it doesn't have it. And I like that because to me, it illustrates the fact that all the way up until that moment, Hawk didn't actually have any verification. Then it goes to the next panel. It goes, there were rumors he was terminated after the testing was completed. There were also whispers that the Mandalorian anomaly had escaped. And all you see is a panel looking into the cell and it's just empty. Which, to me, it, it, that tells me that, okay, Hawk was there. He knows that the guy got out. He just doesn't know anything else about the guy, one way or the other. Uh, that was kind of a cool little twist. And, I, and I'm, like you, in the aspect of wondering, you know, had they done something similar with the other time frames or something to kind of lock them in, maybe I would have followed it a little better. I mean, I, I think issue number two for me, I didn't really mind the one jumping forward once I figured out, okay, that's what had happened. Because the first one threw me off so bad that I was able to accept that one. Uh, but... Yeah, I like the fact that at this point, the story has got me. I was really interested in what was going on with the clone. I like the fact that the clone had worked himself into a way with Vader, a, a really cool position. This is the part of the story that I was really enjoying. So, I mean, that was where I was like, okay, there's a really cool story here, but it just wasn't delivered in a way that left me feeling satisfied. Yeah, again, I wonder if the way they did everything was just to cover a lot of ground quickly, because after that, the rest of the issues are mostly chronological. Um, they're all still flashbacks, but mostly chronological. So it's kind of a, the way they told that story, the way sometimes it felt disjointed and such, is this really something where it was just, how do I cover the most ground in only two issues so I have three issues left for most of the action? Um, but it's it's so far that that bouncing around, which I think was meant to give us a real sense of connecting with this character. Seeing him at all these different points isn't, doing any good. And of course, now we also have the mental image in our minds of Kadak, who apparently is not the same as, say, you know, Alpha, whoever it was, or wh whichever the clone was that, that said 17. no and left. Yeah, Alpha just There's so freaking many different tales of the one clone who decided to go against the grain that you're... It's just kind of like, yeah, really, we're treading this freaking ground again? Oh, but at least this one is some crazy mutated-looking dude, only we'll find he's not. That's all mental images um, that Hawk has had in his head. But I'm expecting that 
well, one, I wasn't really expecting him to come back at all in the story. Uh, yeah. But I had hoped that at least if he did, it would fit that image because otherwise it really is kind of a, wait, what kind of moment, which we're coming to. So we move into part three. And we start with a lot of destroyed Imperial uh, walkers and such, which is the one place or one of the few places that's out of chronological order in this particular issue. He says, a few live to tell of it. But to this day, in the right dark corner, the right cantina, etc., etc., you'll hear Hush talk about the so-called Shrouded Offensive. And he says he's telling the true story, the biggest battlefield disaster the Empire had ever known. Um, the Empire being very, very young at this time, so probably not a whole lot of disasters up to this point. But even now, with all the different stories that we got in Legends Shortly after Revenge of the Sith, you gotta kinda wonder if this really is the biggest battlefield disaster, because it seems like there's quite a lot of stories in which the Empire gets crap handed to them until they finally come out of it at the end to sort of maintain their prestige. Um, we find that the battle that's gonna be sort of the centerpiece of this whole thing takes place on the planet Ostor, on the fringes of the Outer Rim. Basically, you got a separatist civilization there, um, away from the eyes of the Emperor, thinking they are going to live and resist on their own, and potentially inspire others, but it has drawn the Empire's attention, so Vader is there to whoop them, uh, to whip them into shape. And it says that Vader made three mistakes that day, at least the first day of this battle. That he stayed behind on his Star Destroyer uh, for whatever reason, they never say why, because Hawk doesn't know, so the reader doesn't know. That uh, he doesn't bother with recon on the mission, again, for reasons we don't know, because Hawk doesn't know, it, he just sort of does. Uh, and then he put General Roan in charge. And General Roan is basically going to be the, uh, the bad guy, so to speak, the antagonist of this particular issue. And we see a battle in which a bunch of ground troops, stormtroopers, and some walkers, and some, some of the little, I guess they're all walkers, like chicken walking look at things, um, going into battle, led by Roan, who's inside one of the tanks, therefore basically sort of isolated from the battle. And he's trying to basically win the confidence, it seems like, of Vader, a uh, very arrogant guy pushing forward. And Hawk is able to see much closer to the enemy lines, because he's on the front lines, see the general of the people of Ostor, which is Atticus. You expect him to be, uh, you know doing something about mockingbirds and such. Um, but Atticus Farstar, and uh, th that it's a name worthy of remembrance. And we see the very obvious, but apparently General Roan is a moron, lure of a banner that's being held by these fighters that reads, uh, General Roan is a such-and-such, such, but they don't say what the such-and-such such is. Which to me begs the question of how do they know General Roan is the guy in charge? Unless he has contacted them and said, you know, I am General Roan, you must stand down. At what point were they able to do the banner and have his name? I thought that that was one of those things where Roan was already attached to this planet and Vader left him in charge to let him just continue the foul up. That the, the people on the planet were already familiar with this guy. I would hope so, but then again it said that, you know, this is something where they thought they were alone and then Vader comes with the Emperor's might to smash them. So if Roan was already there, that seems inconsistent. Um, with what they said early on. But suffice to say, for idiotic matters of pride, Roan orders them to attack the banner. Attack the center where the banner is, because surely that's not a trap. Of course not. 
we see the people basically falling back, and as they fall back, it's luring the Imperials into a trap. Hawk realizes it, but since the banner is still there, and it's still ticking off Rome, Rome won't allow them to back off, no matter what Hawk warns. Um, and Hawk talks about how he's unable to turn the tide. We get one of the more interesting bits of narration, where he talks about how yeah. it's a discipline thing. Uh, this would never have happened with the all-clone armies I served with before. We understood discipline and order. Just a few replacements, meaning people who weren't clones. That's all it took to undermine the infrastructure. At that moment, on that day, I feared for the future of the Imperial Army. I envisioned a day when the clones would be scattered too thin. Lifelong training purpose replaced by those merely seeking a job. I envisioned an army of troopers who couldn't hit anything they shot at. Disgusting. Um, <laughs> and as I ran through the tidal wave of white helmets, my revulsion grew. So kind of amusing that it's trying to write off the whole stormtroopers can't hit the broadside of a barn thing. But he gets angry. He stands in front of the command uh, t tank, as the command walker, throws his helmet at the windshield, um, and is basically mouthing off to Roan, who still won't respond. So he grabs, he uses his grappling hook, which we've seen before. He gets himself up onto a wa the walker, takes one of the little walkers, little one-man ones that we see in Revenge of the Sith, grabs an explosive, blows his way into the walker where Roan is, jumps inside. And faces off with Roan, who holds him bl briefly at blaster point, um, essentially ordering the fight to continue onward. And as soon as his attention is turned away, Hawk grabs him and snaps his neck, calling him a traitor. But by that point, the Imperials have been basically ripped to shreds down on the ground in the span of basically 15 minutes. They fought to the last man, and everyone amongst the Imperial side, among the ground force at least, is dead. Vader contacts them to see uh, what the report is, and Hawk flat out admits that, you know, he killed Roan, and he's the one who will give the report. We jump forward and see why we needed to be told that story, aside from the fact that that's the planet they will return to, and that is that this is what starts to win Vader's trust for Hawk, because they have to make a report, the two of them, to basically Tarkin, uh, Armand Icehard, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, the Emperor and Sate Pestage. And basically, they, they base, uh, Hawk blames everything, uh, including the lack of reconnaissance and so forth on Roan, even though it was Vader's mistake that was made. So he basically uses the man as a scapegoat, and the Emperor just says that next time he expects a more hands-on approach from Vader, and he's not executed. Hawk isn't executed or anything like that because he's told sort of the truth in some respects, though he's massaged it in others. And this is when Vader, showing appreciation and trust, basically says that he wants a man at his side that he can trust if Hawk can also fly a starfighter. Because next time they're going to take them from the land and the air, Vader's going to be there on the front lines in his own starfighter. It'll turn out to be a black uh, Jedi starfighter, like the type of starfighter we saw back in Revenge of the Sith, which is really cool, the Jedi Interceptor, based on... I'm assuming the toy, which by itself was pretty cool, uh, and Hawk will be there in a V-Wing along his side, leading a bunch of ARC-170s into battle, and Vader wants Hawk, someone he can trust, as his wingman. So we end the issue with Hawk smiling, because he's just earned the trust that he very much wanted. So ends issue three. Which, you know, 
I mean, the fact that he had to earn that trust through lying, we'll find out down the road, wasn't really the best way to go about it. I do find it interesting that, I mean, this is, it's not the first time we've had a story of basically, oh, look, it's a leader on the battlefield who is arrogant and not doing what's in the best interest of his troops because he's blinded by something. And, oh, the troops have to find a way to save the day for themselves. That's not something particularly new in war storytelling or necessarily in Star Wars storytelling, though it's certainly yeah. less prevalent in Star Wars than in broader war storytelling. Um, the fact, though, that doing so is able to gain Vader's trust and lying to cover Vader's butt gains Vader's trust was an interesting way to go about getting Hawk closer and closer. It's like the story is all about the legends that he has heard and getting him close enough to that legend to see it firsthand and realize that not all legends are true, that a lot of the luster on this really isn't there, takes the shine off of this magnificent thing that he thinks is what he should be willing to follow, thinks is this great, amazing warrior. Mm -hmm. uh, but it does kind of fall flat a little bit because he's lying and blaming Roan for things like the lack of reconnaissance, which we know from earlier in the issue is apparently something that was Vader's decision. But we never find out why Vader did that. Are we just assuming that he was arrogant or overconfident, as Hawks suggests might have been the case, or what? Because it seems like those mistakes of Vader's, except maybe the one about putting Roan in charge, because maybe he was just the guy ready to go for the ground forces and Vader expected him to do his job well. But Vader not taking part in the battle directly, staying aboard the Star Destroyer, and especially the lack of recon. If these are Vader's big mistakes, we never find out why he didn't do them. And it seems as though Vader is smarter than that in pretty much any other story in this time period. Yeah, he's still relatively young and relatively new at being Vader as opposed to Anakin. But Anakin fought in the Clone Wars for three years. Do we really think that Vader was going to make those stupid mistakes without some kind of reason behind it? We kind of yeah. need a reason to think that Vader's a moron here. Well, and I, I think, like, like you said, it, it's... Hawk seeing the tarnish, you know, I mean, even in, in issue two, it, it starts out with the Star Destroyer and it says in his hands, a lightsaber sang beautiful, efficient, nimble, deadly, but the full strength of the Imperial War Machine in his hands, it was what it was big and strong and clumsy. But you're kind of noticing that that Hawk, like as he saw with the clones and they're no longer having, you know, uh, clones in the in the regiment, they actually have now regular people there. You're seeing him see through, you know, he's starting to see what other people were seeing. And, uh, and you know, with the dialogue you got from before where it talks about how, you know, he, he was seeing and, and hearing uh, if you go to different cantinas and stuff, depending on who you talk to, you might hear the true story. So you're starting to kind of get that idea that he's no longer as enthralled with the Empire as he once was, as he was bred to be. Uh, so you kind of get that feeling that, you know, it was it was him almost dying multiple times that caused him to look outside his programming. There's a scene later that we'll get to where he talks about, you know, am I just going to drop dead at a certain pre-described point? And I like the fact that, that the comic explores those questions. I just I, I'm with you in, in the regards of like Vader and, and moving forward. It's like. There are certain little things that that I felt like the story could have benefited more if they'd have given a little more detail, you know, a little preface here or there. Or, like you said, with, with the uh, borders and stuff, maybe just locking in when you're in which time frame. I will say, though, that when we get into issue number four, that Star Destroyer on the front panel, I really like it. I, I've always been a fan of space stuff, but I like the angle which it's coming. You're kind of like up above it, and you're, it's just about to dip below you. 
you know, as it's coming towards you. So it's a really cool angle on that. Again, the art on this series, I'm, I'm actually, I enjoy the art. I mean, I, I like the way that that's working. That's worked very well. Seeing all the fighters and stuff in the ships. There is a moment, though, uh, as these ships get closer to the dome, uh, where a trap gets sprung. And I'm, I was kind of lost because it was like, okay, Vader and Hawk make it through, but everyone else gets blown up. And then you're like, by who? You kind of, it, it, threw me off a little bit there but another little cool attention to detail that i liked was that when hawk's wearing his uh helmet for his v-wing he's continued the stripe on his new helmet and it goes down over the uh, rebreather i thought that was kind of a little cool attention to detail on his part that's right which moves us into issue number four as he said we start with our star destroyer here and we're seeing a return to oster okay now they're going to basically kick their butts, or at least that's the plan for the Empire. Invaders leading from, as I mentioned before, that black uh, Jedi Interceptor with a different astromech in it, of course, because R2-D2 is not with him anymore. And we have Hawk with the B-Wing and a whole bunch of ARC-170s behind them. A freaking huge number of ARC-170s behind them. They move in, and the city... Uh, the rebel city, the separatist city, as they sometimes call it in the story, is covered in an energy field, an energy shield. And as Mark was saying, as they're flying close, blasting away at it, a huge number of those ARC-170s behind them just get blown up, it seems, all at once. It looks like they're all taken out. Um, now, apparently that's not the case. There are others, as we'll see a couple panels later, but it looks like they're all taken out. So at least what, the 10, 15, or whatever it is immediately behind them all get blasted at once. And it turns out yeah. that we've got a new player or a new group of players on the field, so to speak. Kadak, who is that Mandalorian anomaly, is leading another force of Separatists, basically, in uh, Torrent Starfighters, like the kind of Starfighters we saw back in the Gindy Tartakovsky series, in aiding the people of Oster. So they have arrived from space, presumably, and are now coming down and engaging the ARC-170s, engaging uh, Vader and engaging Hawk. Uh, and it turns out that Vader is, of course, the best pilot he's ever seen, because if you see Vader piloting in battle, of course he has to be the best star pilot in the galaxy. Uh, and, of course, we find that there is a second best, who turns out, apparently, to be Kadak. So as Vader starts to realize that in bringing all of his starfighters down to attack, uh, when the torrents start to vanish from the battlefield, that, uh-oh, they're probably going after his Star Destroyer. So Vader takes most of his forces back up to protect the Star Destroyer, whereas Hawk engages in a dogfight with a torrent, which is flown by Kadak. And he will realize, uh, right before he hits the ground, uh, that he has interacted with this person before. It is Kadak, which, again we get one of those sort of mental image type of panels amidst the panels with regular edges. It has the black, crazy edges, and we see what looks like the mutated, huge, hulking, scarred-faced, name scrawled all over his body, Kadak, flying the torrent, saying, Time to die, slave. And we find that Hawk crashes. When he wakes up, he is inside essentially a medical ward or a triage center, if you want to call it that, inside the base of the Separatists. For whatever reason, they decided to take him in and treat him among what appears to be nothing but 
fellow separatists. Kind of makes you wonder, wait, did they think he was a separatist or something when he got shot down? Why would they, they might take... have thought he was Kadic. Maybe. I mean, but wh- wh- why? Because yeah, Kadic apparently somehow, what? Because as I recall, Kadic uh, at the end of the story has no facial hair. So somehow in the midst of the battle, Kadic grew a goatee. Basically, he he was that stressed out. You know, when stress happens, your hair grows just a little bit faster a lot of times, and it starts to fall out. So perhaps he was so stressed in the battle, he grew a goatee magically instantly. Maybe it's that whole, uh, they grow at twice the normal rate kind of crap. Um, well, no, because when you get to the end and he actually sees what Kadok looks like, Kadok has the same amount of hair as him. The only real difference is the scar across the eye and the beard. Kadok has the hair on his head. Kadok does not have a goatee. Yeah. He has no facial hair. So we've got basically, uh, for whatever reason, they take Hawk and actually treat his wounds. I guess it's to say that they are more humane than the Empire is. And that kind of makes sense until you stop and think of the logic of, okay, why did they take him in in the first place um, if he was the enemy? And if he's there and he's the only one who doesn't appear to be a Separatist there, then what about any other downed Imperials? Are we assuming that everybody else died. I know it's supposed to be they fought to the last man in that first engagement. But are we saying that in this second engagement, nobody else crashed? Nobody else was recovered? That he is the only one they decided to take pity on? And if not, then what happened to the others? And why single him out of all people to bring him in? Um, unless it's meant for him to be a captive. But he's not treated like a captive at all. I mean, oh, look, He's the guy from the V-Wing. There was only those two ships that were different than all the ARC-170s. He must be important. Let's treat him. But he's not shackled. He's not given any kind of binders or anything. He's allowed basically free reign to walk around the base into their command center, which is what he does next. He wakes up next to a guy uh, who's lost his legs, and there's a lot of people inside this ward basically who cannot fight because uh, they have extensive battle injuries, and anyone who would have been a guard... Anyone still able to hold a weapon is outside. So apparently they need everybody on the front lines, but it's okay to have some guys stop and drag Hawk in here and not bother to bind him up, even though they know there aren't any guards. Hawk manages... See, that's, that's why I, I lean towards somebody must have thought that he was Kadok. You know, they brought him in, they set him up. I mean, even the guy that's missing the arms and legs is talking into him like he's like a fellow compatriot. Here, take my water. Clothes? Take him shoes, too. Looks like you have use for him. No guards. Anyone still holding a lights? A blasters outside. I, and I, I just got that feeling like, like they were trying to, you know, get him back up to speed to get him back out into battle, not realizing that he's not who they think he is. Granted, there's nothing really there to support that, but that was the impression I had gotten from it. And you, well, you certainly don't get the impression from the leaders. They may, he makes his way through the hallways, gets himself into the command center of this uprising, and finds that. Basically, the three people leading this are more or less people who are just just philosophically against the Empire. They're not warriors, per se. One was a lawyer on Coruscant who uh, wrote documents about the uh, individual rights on the planet and everything, and now that has been wiped from existence. Uh, You have another guy who was a statesman who helped chart two different systems – uh, including being the first or among the first to settle on Oster in the first place. Um, he you know, is, is another of these sort of people who are fundamentally opposed to the Empire. And then you've got a guy who's essentially a poet 
a, a former minor celebrity and educated circle, so to speak, where basically uh, he had just come to the planet trying to retire. And they're talking about how, you know, uh, they, they had peace before. Uh, they are trying not necessarily to win. They're trying to stay alive and hold out hope long enough that it might inspire others. Initially, I thought they meant on the planet, but the opening crawl thing uh, from the last issue suggests that they're meaning it within the broader galaxy itself. Um, and they had peace. They had stability before, but they also had democracy and compassion, etc., etc. And now they don't thanks to the Empire coming there to try to sort of put its boot on their throats. Uh, he grabs a pipe. He's apparently healthy enough to rip a pipe off the wall and is about to bash their heads in. But they just simply say that others are prepared to step into their roles if they're killed. So Hawk sees no point in killing them. It's not efficient. He goes down to basically their power generation station, area, whatever, um, and rips out some of the wires that in theory is going to stop some of the uh, uh, the broadcasting and, more importantly, drop the energy shield to allow the Empire into the city. And it, he feels as though that, you know, he's, this has helped win him the day, possibly remove the last of their hope, but not all of it. They have one last hope, and it's Kadak. As the people outside are cheering, Kadak, 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 he's down on the ground now, leading forces coming out of the city to meet as Vader and a whole bunch of stormtroopers with some ARC-170s in uh, the air above them are on their way to meet these rebel forces. And uh, he basically, he being Hawk, pushes his way through the crowd to the front where Kadak is. We see him reach out and put his hand on Kadak's shoulder. And Kadak turns around. And we expect him to be, and this is the only panel that's like this that doesn't have the, the black jagged edges. We expect it to be this huge, scarred, shirtless, mutated dude. But instead, when he turns around, it's just a guy in regular gear that just more or less looks like Hawk without the scar and without the facial hair. He's just a man. Uh, and it's, you know, it wouldn't be the last time I realized I was completely wrong about something or someone. But in that moment, Seeing Kanak for who he really is doesn't really matter because it takes a while for that kind of, of realization to sink in and instead he sticks with the old ways of combat fighting for the Empire and we end issue four as he punches Kadak and a brawl begins between Kadak and Hawk. Yeah, again, the pacing on this has pushed me right to the point where I'm really excited. I'm enjoying everything. I'm like, okay, this is going to have a really cool conclusion. Moving forward, not so much. But we get to that moment with the leaders where, where Hawk's talking to the different leaders and stuff, and he goes, the galaxy will never be at peace if you and your kind stand up and fight progress. Ah, oh, but that's the only way your emperor will allow us to stand. Otherwise, we're supposed to be on our knees, kissing his feet, or the feet of his monster. Once the galaxy is united, you'll see. No more conflict or fear, a future with peace and stability, with hope. And then the lady comes in, but we had those things here. With liberty and personal responsibility as well. With compassion for the weaker and less able. With laws and courts. With democracy. You see, the three of us represent the wishes of our people, and our people have chosen to fight. So, unless you wish to help us, please leave us to our burden. Which does raise that question of, yeah, why don't you get somebody to subdue this guy? Because at this point, you know, 
Maybe before while he was in bed, someone might have mistaken him for Caddick. But at this point, they know he's not Caddick. He, he's openly against them. So, I mean, at that point, it's like, why didn't they call somebody in? That would have been the smart thing. That was their damning maneuver by allowing him to walk out, knowing he was against them, knowing he said he wasn't going to allow him to do it. Did they really think that by him dropping the pipe, they'd convinced him? I mean, what idiots. But at the same time, apparently they must have convinced him. Because as we get into issue five, his turnabout in what he believes is extremely fast. Um, he pulls an Anakin from Revenge of the Sith, as the joke often goes, where he changes sides fast. Oh no, I just killed Mace Windu. I'm screwed. Okay, I guess I better pledge my life and everything else to Sidious's teachings now and completely give up everything I've known as I grew, which at least is the way it seems like if you haven't read uh, the Revenge of the Sith novelization. Same kind of thing here. He hears these words, he wants to stop them, and somehow, very quickly over the span of that and a little bit of issue five, he becomes very anti-Empire, very anti-Vader, anti-war. Um, it makes sense when we get to a point where he sees slaughtering and he wants no part of that, but already we're getting into this sort of, it's a very fast change. We know it's coming because of the way the narration has gone since issue number one. But it's not well, done in a satisfactory way. There is a panel in the next issue where as everything's going on and, it, and the little narratives is barely recognizable and Hawk looks into the into a mirror. And to me, it's like he sees the Kadek that he thought, you know, and for me, it was kind of like this issue is where he starts to wake up to the truths. You know, Vader and them were doing the right thing, but then Vader carried the slaughter on. He didn't stop when he could have, you know, those kind of things. So... So Hawk's finally seeing the flaw of the Empire that everyone else has been talking about. But but it wasn't until this issue that we finally get it. And I think part of it was his fight with Caddick, you know, and realizing that he was wrong. And that realization spreading from there. It was like, okay, well, if I was wrong about this, what else could I be wrong about? And the more he watched the slaughter, knowing for the fact that he was the one that took the shields down and pretty much gave Vader to the city... And then Vader's going to come in and wipe out everything. I mean, because that was kind of, I, I felt like as we get to the end of, of issue five, you have a Darth Vader, no moment with, you know, Return of the Jedi. And, and Hawk's the one that's having that moment. But as we get to through this, I mean, that I, I think for me, I think the more I, I, I go over this and, and I'm and discussing it with you, I think for me, issue one is, is the part that really made everything harder to swallow. And then the last page of issue five. But we'll move from here. Yeah, so we move into five, and you've got basically that, that fist fight is still going on, and we find that uh, Kadak is being bolstered up by the fact that he's fighting for something and the people uh, are behind him, whereas Hawk feels as though, you know, he's sort of uh, uh, failing in the fight because he really isn't fighting for something, uh, that he's sort of losing ground because he doesn't have that kind of conviction here. And Vader's letting the fight go on. Um, they, they don't wind up immediately having the two groups clash when they get close to each other. Vader holds up a hand, and the stormtroopers just kind of wait to see what happens. Uh, Hawk winds up getting knocked down to the ground. Kadak, uh, with his shirt pulled off, he does have his name scrawled across his back, but it's just the one time. Uh, Kadak has him on the ground, pulls a blaster on him, and he does what he did when fighting the creatures, the, the, the beasts, before, back when he was trying to you know get into the crevice and everything and survive back on the other planet. Uh, he grabs a rock, which in this case he puts inside Kadak's fallen shirt, and smashes Kadak across the face. 
and it says whack. I'm assuming it's supposed to mean that he's knocked out, but he's down on the ground with his eyes open and just kind of laying there. So it may be meant to be uh, his neck snapping. And it's Vader who holds out his hand and lifts Hawk back up, sort of a, you know, uh, come with me if you want to live type of image, bringing him up and back into the fight. And the fight keeps going. Uh, he has not got to a point where he is not believing in Vader and not believing in the cause yet. So presumably the words of the people inside the base didn't convince him to give up the fight. It just may have shown him that he wasn't really fighting for something like they were. But he keeps on battling. I felt like this was the moment where he his conviction was shattered. He hasn't changed yet. But the fight, he's talking about, you know, that motley assortment of fighters cheered every blow. The will to fight wasn't leaving them. Even his mind slowly bled from my nose and my mouth. My arms and legs felt heavy, but I fought as best I could. And they're all screaming, Kadok, Kadok, I fought and fought as I had countless times before. But what's the point if you're not fighting for something? So he's starting to have that epiphany. I mean, he's the empire he's fighting for isn't the empire he wants anymore. Then, just as I felt it all slipping away, something changed. All of a sudden, I was fighting for me. I was fighting to survive. Now, for me, the, what's fundamental about that is He's suddenly looking at things the way that these rebels are, because that's what they're doing. They're fighting for themselves. They're fighting for their own survival. Suddenly, he's now doing that. He's looking at them in the way he used to be looking at the Empire, but he's not willing to admit it yet. The admitting of that comes in the next few panels as the raid moves into the city, and he looks over, and that's what I'm saying. He looks over, and it says, the city had already taken a heavy beating from the air. It was in flames and in near total ruin, barely recognizable, and he gets done shooting this lady that came around a corner, and he looks in the window, and he sees himself like that. And then the next whole page is all about him talking about Vader and the things that Vader did. Uh, it's all, is there an ounce of humanity left in that dark machine? I still ask myself that. I honestly don't know. I hope not. Because over the course of that next hour, I saw things. Images that still visit me in the dark. I heard things. Cries that still wake me from a deep sleep. So it was like, during that fight, something changed. But then it was that next hour that made him wake up to everything he had been, you know, in contact with. With the rebels, uh, with everything that they had said. All those ideas. They'd all come together and it got to that point that through this hour, that was when the change happened. But I saw the steps of that change happening in this issue. I like the way that that progression works. So, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i conflicted. I mean, I see where you're going with it, but at the same time, I did see a change there. See, I'm seeing that there's these moments of him starting to shift, but it's an inconsistent shift. If anything, he's wavering a lot because it goes from, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I don't have anything to fight for to... Now I'm fighting for me, and no, I do not think that is the same thing as what the, the, the others are fighting for. Uh, the people on this planet, listening to the leaders, they are fighting for the ideals of democracy and such, and they're fighting a, a losing action intending to buy time for word to get out. If anything, they're sacrificing themselves rather than fighting for their own survival. So him saying he's fighting for him, it's like a third faction to be fighting for. There's the Separatists in their cause, there's Vader in his cause, and now there's just uh, just Hawk and his need for survival. But it seems like that then goes down the tubes. He goes from, you know, I'm fighting for me, to as soon as Vader comes it says, hold my hand, cue the Hootie and the Blowfish in the background, he's right back into the fight, right? The Separatists didn't stop fighting, and that only made me angrier and angrier. That heaviness in my arms and legs left behind alongside Kadak's lifeless body. And 
yes, it gets to a point where he starts to be sickened by what happens once they're inside and Vader starts slaughtering people. But for that moment, it's like Vader taking his hand and lifting him up puts him right back into the Go Empire, Go Vader mindset as he charges in and is slaughtering these people himself. Just in his case with a blaster, not a lightsaber. So there's an inconsistency of his character's change of mind that's happening. And I guess you could say, well, you know, he's wavering and change of mind doesn't necessarily happen all that quickly. But it's another thing that makes this character fall flat for me. Because it doesn't feel like he has a steady arc of progression. Um, what is his changing point? And we've got him here. Uh, you read the, the narration there. Great moments of, you know, he's killing uh, the, the last few survivors that he winds up finding. He sees himself in the mirror as barely, uh, barely recognizable. Although, honestly, if that's meant to be him seeing in himself what he thinks of when he thought of uh, Kanak back before he realized what Kanak really looked like, it's not distorted enough. That that funhouse mirror type image he should be getting from that glass should have been something done the way those jagged edge black images were, where he sees himself as a monster instead of just looking at himself, gritting his teeth, and barely recognizable. Well, okay, but as much as you've played with imagery up to this point, Guzman, you probably should have played with it a little bit there. Um, I do think this is where we finally get the title of this story because... The title of this story, to me, always kind of had me shaking my head. What's the deal with Cry of Shadows? Lost Command was Garrosh Tarkin's. Ghost Prison was where they went. Ninth Assassin was that Ninth Assassin that basically never really meant much of anything in the grand scheme of things with that story. But Cry of Shadows? Apparently, it's the, the cries of the dead or the cries of the dying that Hawk would hear in the night when he's trying to sleep. Uh, where it says, I heard things, cries that still wake me from a deep sleep. Uh, which if he had just said the cry of shadows, we could have done the whole everything wrong with roll credits to go with it because it's leading us into here's why it's it's uh, called what it is. And it's got a great panel to end that line of thought about praying no human being is capable of what Lord Vader did that day because we've got Vader standing, lightsaber ignited in front of a child. We assume he's about to kill because we know that he did that back in Revenge of the Sith. Um, the artwork sometimes really does well, especially when it comes to Vader. He's really good at capturing uh, Vader in some dynamic imagery, especially with the cloak blowing yeah. and all of that stuff. But it's like that's the moment where his mind changes, and it doesn't seem like he's necessarily anti-Empire yet, so much as it's like he's just trying to save lives. Like he believes in Vader, he believes in the cause, or at least he did. If he's wavering now, it's wavering because he wants to save lives that don't need to be lost, like children who pose no threat, for instance. Um, so he makes his way back inside, heads back uh, to that that's, that uh, control room, right? Uh, finds that the leaders didn't have any last words to share. He gets there as Vader just flat out slaughters them. They didn't even have a chance to draw their weapons. They're just dead. Uh, another thing where he's like, you know, this isn't right. You know, he sees something that's not morally right from this. And he rushes to follow Vader as Vader goes to where he had woken up, to that medical war with a bunch of incapacitated people, some amputees, just people that certainly, even less than children, are able to fight at this point. And he comes in and uh, it, he says his initiative surprises Vader in what he says. Which makes you think that Vader is thinking that he's 
taking the initiative to get people to follow the empire. But what he says is, your leaders are dead, take a knee and bow to your new lord. And it's as though he's supporting the empire, but in saying that, he's trying to get these people to submit so that the slaughter doesn't continue. So he's sort of still on the empire's side, but doing it in a way to sort of curtail Vader's bloodlust at this point. But what happens next surprises both of them as a man who is a triple amputee, the guy that gave him his clothes early on, the guy who's got one arm and no legs at this point, makes it a point to get up from laying down when told to bow and sits up as best he can. And so does everyone else, including guys on crutches, people in wheelchairs. They're all refusing to bow. And Vader says, you know, follow your leaders into oblivion, ignites his lightsaber, and cuts down a couple of these guys. Cuts down the guy that's the triple amputee, cuts down the guy that's on the crutches. And this is where, to me, I'm kind of like, really? About the way the ending goes. We'll describe it and get Mark's thoughts on it, and then I'll give mine. Um, it's kind of a two-part ending. The end of this clash and what's happening with Hawk in the present day. The end of the clash. Hawk starts yelling, stop, stop, and Vader actually stops. But it says, I'm not sure what I said next. Those dark eyes, no hint of emotion, no glimmer of humanity. That's what will haunt my memory until my final breath. I know I said something. I certainly know how I felt seeing these people literally stand up for their beliefs. And what was that? To live on their own? In peace? The full realization crashed down on me. My respect had been misplaced. And he drops his blaster. Could I have said more? Should I have said something different? Had I been more eloquent or more persuasive or slightly less rattled by those cold eyes, could I have saved those lives? In that moment, could a new course have been set, perhaps for the entire galaxy? This too will haunt me forever. Then again, maybe Vader's pause was something else. Maybe he was just deciding whom to kill next. And Vader goes on to kill them. But Hawk walks away. And he talks about how um, that was the, the time in which you know, things changed for him. Um, he doesn't know what his future holds at this point anymore, but he's writing to confess his sins, to memorialize what happened there because the Empire has scrubbed it, essentially, from historical record, and to, to express his conviction that the Empire can't succeed. And he's passing along this conviction to his as-yet-unborn child which is our transition to the modern day, where he's a farmer again, only this time it's on his own farm, and he's married to a woman named Telia, who's about to give birth to their child. And we see him sitting and writing on this table with tons and tons of not just a journal that he's filling, but a bunch of loose-leaf sheets scattered across the table, where it seems like he's been taking down copious notes and, and tales of what happened. He sees a shadow in the doorway that looks like Vader, but it's really his wife. He really should ask his wife to cut her hair a little bit differently if, his sh if her shadow's going to keep looking like Vader and scaring the crap out of him every time. Um, and they decide to spend the evening you know, uh, uh, eating these, these berries or whatever it is that she found by the stream and watching the sunset. And once she finally goes to sleep, for unexplained reasons, Hawk takes all these notes and this testament that he has written this entire time and throws it into the fire to destroy it, the end. Simply uh, throwing away any memory of that past life of his to focus on his life with his wife and his child. Um, an odd way to end this in both respects. Mark, why don't you tackle it first? Yeah, I mean, odd is definitely the way. Uh, going back to right after he killed the leaders, 
Uh, it said, uh, but like so much of the bloodshed I'd seen in my life, it was a scene of little consequence. Sounds followed by silence. Action followed by stillness. Followed by numbness. I can tell you that they never drew their weapons. Even when they had a chance to kill me earlier that day. It was over, I thought. I hoped. But I wasn't going to leave anything to chance. So he wants it to end. I, I get that. So he comes in and he screams, your leaders are dead. Take a knee to bow to your new lord. And, of course, then they stand up. And when Vader starts slicing him down, you know, when he cuts the, the triple amputee down, the first thing that, that Hawk does, he's like, no! And then the guy on the crutch, when he cuts him down, he's like, stop! And then he's like, stop! Stop! I I like... I like Hawk. I, I, I think, for me, I mean, Hawk... This this is Hawk's story, 100%. But I... I don't know. I, I, I felt like it was a slow progression of him coming to that point where he finally worked up the cojones to tell Vader to stop. Um, and, and moving on, like, you know, you, you read everything that came after that. And it was interesting though, that Vader did just, you know, turn around and didn't decide to just slap him down and or chop him up and stuff too. That That's where it gets that moment where, you know, it goes, there are many things I'll never know. My genetic code, for example, was the exact day and hour of my death predetermined years ago in a Kamoan lab. Will I just drop dead? No longer useful for my created purpose, pre-programmed to be expendable in my advanced years away from the battlefield? Or will I just speed through old age as quickly as I did speed through my youth? So I write to confess my sins. And and it gets back to that part. And, well, yeah, when he throws it in, there, that's the one panel right there that really threw me off. I mean, I was, I was digging it all. Like, you know, he walked away. He had a family life. The only thing I can think of is that he's burning this because he wants to protect that. But I'm kind of under the impression, like, dude, I don't think he had anything to worry about. So the symbolic action here is lost on me. I mean, unless that is exactly it, and I, and I got it, but it it didn't ring very loud for me. Yeah, it's so many issues I have with the way that this ended. Uh, first off, Vader is cutting people down, and because Honk is saying, stop, 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 Vader's gonna stop? And when Hawk finally drops the blaster, um, and apparently is is back talking Vader and trying to convince Vader not to do this, Hawk gets to walk away. This is Vader. Vader may be Anakin, but Vader is dark side at this point, and Vader is fueled by that. So how does Hawk get to walk away? How is this a, well, since you were my buddy and I trusted you, you're allowed to talk to me like that. Just don't let me see your face again. Vader should have sliced him to ribbons at that point. Or force choked him or something. And instead, he just lets Hawk walk away. And apparently never in his anger tries to hunt Hawk down or anything. As trying to, you know, get rid of, you know, a sign of his weakness of his past or anything like we sometimes see with Vader in other stories. Because Hawk is alive and well to tell his story later. Um, it seems odd that someone could apparently do what Hawk did here and not wind up dead. But of course, we don't know exactly what Hawk did because they take another very bizarre approach that I think would have worked well on film, but doesn't so much in print like this. And we don't get to hear what he says. Stop, stop, stop. And then apparently he gives some long explanation of why Vader should stop. He's trying to express to Vader why this isn't the right way. He thinks that his words might even be something that could change Vader's actions, if only he may have been more eloquent, blah, blah, blah. Uh, of all the things he remembers, all the details he remembers, of all this, he doesn't remember saying this. 
And because of that, we don't get to hear what he says in the story. If this was a movie, then what we might have seen is stop, 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 and then it goes into like slow motion or something. And we see him from behind as he's gesticulating, but we know he's talking. And we see maybe the crowd's eyes as they're listening. Or maybe Vader's face as he's listening until finally it stops. And maybe there's music or a crescendo of something playing in the background. So it seems to us like there's a drama to this moment where we're like, whoa. And then maybe you've got the narration going over that. Instead, we just find out that he must have said something. We don't even see a panel of him saying something. But apparently he must have said something. While Vader was just kind of standing there not killing anybody that he thinks could have made the difference. Not even realizing, though, whether Vader was listening or not, as he says there at the end. It seems bizarre that the climax of this story comes down to him yelling to Vader to stop and saying something that defines him as a man and that he hoped would help redefine Vader that doesn't. But that we don't find out what that is. It's an interesting storytelling choice. It is something unusual, and I think that's probably what he was going for. I'm going to do something nobody expects and not let people hear it. But it makes the ending a really dull ending because you feel like it isn't complete. We have a story here that ends with a climactic moment. It'd be like if we were watching A New Hope and we see Luke charging towards the exhaust port. We see him turn off his targeting computer, and the next thing we see is the rebel... Uh, is well, We hear a narration about how, well, it all went well that day thanks to one torpedo as we see the ships flying away and the Death Star explodes. But we don't see him actually fire the shot, have it go in, hear the, great shot, kid, that was one in a million, and Luke flies away. There's something missing to the way that it's told here that I don't think the author expected to feel like quite so much of a hole in the storytelling. I think he thought he was being very creative here. Instead, he found a very creative way of ripping some of the heart out of the end of the story. Mm -hmm. And then we get a double blow to that at the end, because here he's talking about, you know, so I write to confess my sins, to memorialize those scrubbed from history by imperial decree, to express my conviction that the empire won't succeed, can't succeed. And if these things are things that he's writing basically to get it out of his system, okay, maybe it makes sense once he's done. He's had that catharsis. He feels better. He can burn it because that's all he needed. But he continues on to say, and to pass along that hope to a child who may never know his or her father. Um, I'm assuming that this is supposed to be his kid. Maybe he thinks he's going to die soon or something because of, of you know, the whole double age speed thing, or maybe she's pregnant by somebody else and the father's gone, so he's going to be raising the child, but it doesn't matter. He's supposed to be writing this to pass along hope to the child. The child is supposed to get this book, see the truth, and have hope. But he burns it. Was there something wrong with those berries that she brought home that something screwed up in his stomach? He's like, oh, <laughs> I don't feel like giving this to my kid again. Oh, and he just decides to burn it? The last two panels of him standing in front of the fireplace and burning the book seem to have defeated the entire purpose of why he was writing, which in turn devalues the purpose of the story being told by him in that narration in the first place. Mm -hmm. The, the yes. end of this last issue 
takes what could, it was already a premise that was hampered by the way the first couple of issues were told, but it was really going somewhere. It felt like it could have redeemed itself and turned out to be one of those ones that we could say started a little bit weak, but got stronger and turned into one that we would recommend. But those last few pages go all over everything else and winds up fizzling it out. It really feels like, to use that same sound effect, but not in quite the same way, it was as if once we got past that first issue, issue and a half, a balloon was blowing filled with ex with uh, uh, just, what am I looking for? A suspense, I guess, with, with excitement that this could be cool. And in the end, instead of taking it and giving us the bang at the end of popping that balloon, you just let it go and went and just fizzled out into nothing. Yeah, you know, that scene where he's screaming, stop, stop. You know, they should have ended it with Vader, like sticking out an arm and all you hear is like a whack. And then he wakes up, like, the battle's over. You know, I, I I had a hard time with Vader letting him live. I gathered, though, that by Vader letting him live, he always felt like Vader might be coming back to take him out. At least that was kind of the impression I got from the shadow and the pure panic, which led me to wonder, you know, was that was that all we saw there was, was absolute pure panic, that he was just so afraid of Vader, always watching over his back, that even writing it down, he may conjure him up. But there was nothing to, to support that. So, I, you know, when I, when I stop and I look back over everything, and, and now I've read this three times in less than 12 hours, and it's easier now on this third time through to, to put my finger on the parts that really, for me, throw the story off. And I would say, you know, the, the, the fragmented pacing of, of issue one and how it did its flashbacks put me in a position where as the rest of it came, I was kind of looking at it all and, and over analyzing how it was coming to me. And then when you get to that end panel, like, like you said, it, it felt like it made a lot of the story worthless. You know, the whole point was for him to confess his sins and all that. And there was no narrative to say why he decided to burn it. You know, if he was doing it to protect her or to protect their way of life, or, you know, he didn't want to risk anymore. He was done with risk. Anything would have been better than, than him just tossing it in the fire. Like he it's did. This is his equivalent. This, I, I finally think, it, as you said, that I think it finally hit me why this frustrates me and what I could equate it to. It is, the, it is this story's version of Padme losing the will to live. That's what this is. It is an mm -hmm. unexplained giving up on something he theoretically should have had conviction for that gets no explanation and in doing so devalues the character, what they went through, and the ending of the story. It's Padme giving up the will to live all over again, only this time with facial hair. I could actually see that. No, no, I, I could see that being the case. Okay, well, overall, I would say I would give this, you know, if I was to say it was a 1 through 10 score, I would give it a probably five and a half, maybe six. The art was good enough that the few issues I had with the story, I could overlook that. Uh, it wasn't a terrible story, as we said in the beginning half. Uh, it, it wasn't the strongest of stories, but again, like Nathan said at the beginning, if you're into clones, this might be something you'll enjoy. I know that that was the aspect of the story that I was enjoying the most. It was the aspect of the story I was hoping for more impact out of. Uh, but at the same time, Knowing that the end isn't going to be something that's all bells and whistles and yay, we just defeated the Empire. Going into the story, knowing that, you may actually enjoy it more than, than me and Nathan did our first times through. Uh, I know my first read through the single issues, I really, I, I didn't care for the story and I was very confused by the story. Uh, and then when I read through it all together, 
I really got that sense of, wow, this is really fragmented. I, I felt like it was like a Quentin Tarantino movie, like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs done poorly executed. Like it just did not do what it meant to do. I got what they were trying to do. There were just key elements that were needed to make it work for me. Yeah, I guess if I were to put this on a scale of 1 to 10, which we don't usually do, um, the art, I'd say, is probably a 7 or 8. It's got moments that are awesome that bring it up to like a 9 or a 10, but in its entirety, I would say probably 7 or 8. It's decent art. There are moments where it's great. There are moments when it's really kind of of murky and lacking some of the detail that I would like, but I wonder if part of that is the color choices that they use, that it's less uh, the, the actual line art than it is the coloration. From a storytelling standpoint, um, I'm going to have to say this is probably a four or five. Uh, again, it's not bad, bad. It's got some parts that are just like, what? Like the ending of it that take away from the greater whole. Uh, but it's certainly better than Ninth Assassin, <laughs> Even if it's not really, I, I wouldn't put it there. I guess if five is sort of the middling level of Star Wars stories, then I would put this at about a four just because it's sort of in that sort of middling quality level. But generally, if someone were to say, hey, should I read this or something else? I would say, yeah, probably something else. Hence, taking a little bit lower. Well, moving into covers, this one, as well as the other Darth Vader series, did not have a trade paperback. It had a hardcover. In this case, the hardcover is issue number two. Uh, issue number one, though, it's got Darth Vader. It says, the Dark Lord makes a first impression. And it's got Vader standing in the middle. He's got his lightsaber kind of held out, and he's got his left fist up, and he's doing what looks to be a, a group force choke. There is a scene in the you know, issue one where he's talking about the legends of Vader and stuff. And there's a scene where, where Vader does that. So it's cool to see it come to life, the coloring and stuff. It's got a muted red, like look to it kind of almost looks like the lightsabers putting glow around people, but it, it's kind of cool. I liked it. In fact, I would say one of the stronger suits of this series was the fact that the covers were all pretty good. There was very few weak covers for me. Uh, the second one is the hardcover cover as well. And it's all into battle with Vader. And Vader's in the process of swooping the lightsaber down over his left shoulder like he's going to come at a like a cross hatchet across down into the right. Uh, and he's got the clone trooper standing behind him all, you know, they're in the charge position with the rifles up and at their chins, that kind of stuff. I, I like that one. It was a good use for the one that they decided to make the hardcover cover. Um, issue three was a little bit weird because I remember when I looked at it, I was kind of wondering, like, is Vader throwing Hawk off the cliff? What's going on here? Who's he throwing over the cliff? Not really seen this represented in the comic, but it says a force to be reckoned with. And it's got Vader. He's got the lightsaber down at his waist, kind of like in that classic Vader where he's pointed towards the ground kind of thing. And he's got his left hand. He's doing a force push, knocking the guy who's shooting a blaster and the three blaster kind of going awry. And he's knocking him off the cliff. Uh, I would say, though, number four is probably my favorite issue. I Something about Vader in the cockpit of one of the Jedi fighters and TIE fighters, those kind of things I really enjoy. And it's an up close of him inside the uh, Jedi Interceptor cockpit. He's got his hands on what looks to be like uh, uh, the steering mechanism, maybe, or, or an air line. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but I think it's part of the steering mechanism for the ship and he's got it in his hand. And he's turning. You can see the explosion of the ship behind him reflected off of his, uh, his left islands there. And it's got the contrast of the red of the explosion up on his helmet. That one is hands down my favorite of them all. Uh, but number five was also cool. Cause it's got a lot of really cool flames. I like the coloring of it. I'd say that five though is probably the weakest because of Vader. Um, uh, 
his chin on the helmet looks very small. The, the vocab around the front of his mouth looks tiny in comparison to everything else. Uh, but he's absorbing a blaster bolt in his left hand. Again, he's got the lightsaber pointed down. And I'm assuming this must be Hawk. I, I mean, I don't even know who this guy is. I mean, maybe it's just supposed to be another one of the, the separatists on the planet. It's a bearded guy and he's shooting at him and he's got like his hand on his heart and there's flames everywhere. So, I mean, it's a cool enough cover, but I, I think of all of them, that one for me was probably the weakest. What about you, Nate? Yeah, the covers are all by Felipe Massafara, if I'm saying that correctly, and uh, they're all pretty good. Um, but again, they don't necessarily seem like they connect too much with the story on the inside. Um, it seems kind of like the, the drawing assignment was, hey, we like some cool Vader art. We think you can do some cool Vader art. So how about uh, Vader in a group, Vader with some clones, Vader on a cliff, Vader in a ship, Vader with some fire. How's that sound? Just make some like generic Vader action sequences and we'll pick which one best fits that particular issue and just kind of go with it. Because, yeah, there, there's uh, unless it's basically just supposed to be part of his, you know, what Hawk is hearing about in the different rumors and such. One's image doesn't seem to really come from anywhere. Two, which is awesome, it's my favorite of these Vader stalking forward with the troops behind him swinging the lightsaber and everything. Uh, the one that was used for the hardback, as you mentioned. Good, but again, very generic. Three, no idea who that character's supposed to be that he's trying to throw off the ledge or pull back from the ledge or whatever, because you'd figure it's got to be Hawk, but sure doesn't look like him but also doesn't look like necessarily any particular uh, Rebel character that we see. We have Vader generic in the cockpit, which granted is cool looking, but very generic. And then the fifth one, Vader with the fire behind him. That's the one that says, the Dark Lord takes a hands-on approach. And then we get five, Vader with the fire behind him, where the fire is sort of acting like more, you know, force electricity looking in terms of the way that it's drawn. Uh, with Vader blocking the shot with his hand from the guy on the ground that looks... Honestly, more like Kyle Katarn than anyone else. Thank uh, you. In the way that he's drawn, saying, you know, all will fall. Um, it, it seems, I mean, it's, they're cool images. None of them are bad images. They just feel like they're very generic, and they just used the text on the cover as a way of trying to at least remotely tie in what's in that image with what's in the story. Like, you could have taken these and switched which issue had which cover made a slight variant of the words, and it would have made just as much sense as the order that they wound up in with the words that they wound up with. So cool covers, but anyone looking at these covers, there's not much they're going to be able to take from seeing these that'll give them any hint, really, of the story that's on the inside. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. 
You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that in Marvel's new series focused on Darth Vader, they avoid bringing in Tim Seidel. Or that we do a book soon, again, after Darth Maul. Because we invited your whistle. And I'm thinking it's time for a retrospective on Dark Horse in the near future. If only because I kept thinking that we should make a list of writers we'd like to hear back again and writers that we don't want to see back again. And this particular storyline certainly helped fill out the second of those. True that.